morning. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, we're going to open uh, the, the 13th chapter, which is, uh, as I mentioned before, is kind of a transitional chapter. And we're going to see, I think, I think in this passage, more than, more than any passage, we get a glimpse of, of not only who Jesus is, but who God is. What is, what is the heart of God? And uh, if we think about it too much, we will, it seems to me, we'll find it almost unbelievable uh, what, what's going on in, in this scene. Um, even though the scene itself is, is kind of like a, a parable, it's an enacted, an enacted story that is going to look ahead to what Jesus is about to do on the following day or in the following days of his death and, and resurrection. So let's, uh, let's pray before we begin. Uh, Father, thank you for this time. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for uh, the, the tender mercies that you have shown us, uh, the way that you have come and washed our feet. And you have washed us all, and you constantly wash our feet and uh, take upon yourself the role of a servant uh, in relation to your creation. Uh, it's profound and, and uh, humbling, Father, and we just um, are grateful for it. We pray that we would uh, get a glimpse of your glory in it and that we also might uh, enact it within the world in, in whatever way that works out. And Father, I thank you for your word and how it has uh, changed my life. I pray uh, for all of us that it would be indeed uh, life-changing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. So I mentioned last week that chapter 12 is transitional within the, within the Gospel of John, transitioning from a mission to the crowds, uh, the people, uh, to a mission to his disciples in chapters 13 and following, where Jesus begins what we classically call the, the Passion Week, and he begins it with a, a Passover meal. As we saw in chapter 12, there was a hardening underway. Jesus issued one last warning and then departed from the crowds, leaving them to the consequences of their rejection of the way of peace. He would go on in an act of supreme love to take these consequences of the people and their rejection upon himself. And those who recognized what he had done would ultimately benefit from that death. Those who did not recognize this act of supreme love would bear the consequences of their actions. This rejection of the way of peace will end within all the gospels with the wholesale destruction of Jerusalem within, within that generation and of the temple, something that was both destined to happen on the basis of the scriptures, but also preventable had they received their king. Your house is left to you desolate. Luke's Jesus says, referring to the temple. And as he later says in Luke 19, if you had known in this day, even you, referring to Jerusalem and the people in it, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will throw up an embankment against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The same context 
Jesus in Jerusalem is portrayed differently from a different angle in John's gospel, in John chapter 12, and then subsequently in John 13 and following. In John, in chapter 12, he issues a final warning shot across the bow of Israel's ship as an enactment, uh, an enacted parable after delivering some words. While you have the light, he says, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Same thing that we see in Luke's gospel. That's it. They had delayed and the time had passed. He was going to the cross to do for Israel, his disciples and those who embraced him, what Israel herself had failed to do. They would not benefit from it. He would bear in his own body the sin of Israel and indeed of the world. And those who would follow them, follow him would find that they would escape the impending judgment that was about to come upon the city and its people in the form of the Roman legions. A natural consequence of their covenantal and nationalist fervor that Jesus had rejected as the way of truly being Israel. Not the final judgment that I spoke of last week when all things will be sorted out that last day. No, but the, the logical outworking of the brigands' attempts to, to fight against Roman occupation with carnal weapons to bring the kingdom by force. Matthew eleven twelve, we get a sense that this is what Jesus is opposing. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Look at the larger context to see what will happen because they sought not the way of peace to bring in the kingdom, but they sought to bring it in by force. Jesus had offered a way of being Israel and doing the work of the creator God that wouldn't have resulted in the destruction that will eventually come upon the city and its people. And now Jesus will bring the, the kingdom by submitting to the death of the Roman cross, by taking the rebellion of Israel upon himself so as to avert the wrath on behalf of those who will follow him. There are truly some deep things going on in all of these accounts, but one thing is certain. Jesus had thought, thought through what his contemporaries were heading toward, an encounter with Roman forces and the utter destruction of the city and the temple, and he was going to deliver those who would heed his words and flee from the coming wrath, and that he did. Do we hear of any of the disciples, the apostles, getting caught up in the wrath that came upon Jerusalem? We do not. He did deliver them, and he promised he would. In John 13, we have a shift in the scene. It is now, John says, before the Passover, and they are in Jerusalem having a Passover meal. Perhaps uh, on the calendar, it's a day before Passover is supposed to begin, but Jesus is going to press the significance that is due the idea of the Passover, the, the event of the Passover. There are a few things that we have to see in this passage in order to understand its full importance. One is the idea of Passover, the event of Passover. We have seen that within John's book and others as well, that the Feast of Passover provides a framework, a context, a backdrop for Jesus's actions and words. In other words, when John mentions a feast, and especially Passover, he intends that we apply that feast to the coming events and words that Jesus will perform and say. 
The question becomes, in what way should we associate the following events with the Passover? And in keeping with the Passover theme, here too, it is going to work with the ideas I've already mentioned, that Jesus is going to deliver his people from the coming wrath that will fall upon Jerusalem, the new Egypt, the new Babylon, that seeks to enslave God's people. Passover has been mentioned before within John. So think back to what Passover was in, in Egypt. Like what happens? Like literally what happens? God rescues them from Egypt. He calls them out of Egypt, rescues them, punishes Egypt for their, their enslavement of the people. This is the same thing that is being implied here. This is what Jesus is going to do. It's not all that he's going to do, but fundamentally this is how he frames his work within all the Gospels. I think that's a very important thing. Like, if you look at the Gospels and think, well, how does Jesus view his own death and how does he present that to us? It's always within the context of Passover, which is why we do the Lord's Supper. Right? This whole thing is about a new Passover that's going to, to happen um, and a new deliverance that's going to happen for the people of God. So it's within that context that everything must be viewed. You may get tired of me talking about Passover, but like that is the fundamental way by which he wants us to view his death. He is doing for Israel what was done for Israel prior to uh, in the first Exodus, and this is going to extend now to all the world. Those who will come to him will experience this, this Exodus, this new Exodus. Passover had been mentioned before in John. In 2.13, just before Jesus performs an enactment of judgment upon the temple, the Passover of Jews was said to be near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He then proceeds to enter the temple and drive out those who were in it to symbolically stop the temple proceedings, anticipating the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 12. The time has come, Jesus seems to be saying, for this present temple to be done away with. It is now redundant. Now the one to whom it pointed has come, and it is hopelessly corrupt, but more importantly, it is redundant. Jesus himself is that temple that is about to be built after his body is destroyed. John 2 verse 9. And when he tells the leaders this, they scoff at him. The point is lost on them at, this, at that time. He is bringing about a new Passover and the construction of a new tab tabernacle is underway. Think about what happens when they come out of Egypt. When they come out of Egypt, where are they headed? Of course, they're headed to the promised land, but where are they headed before that? What seems to be, what takes up the, the content of, of Exodus 25 through all the end of Exodus? Like over half of the book is filled up with what? The building of the tabernacle. So Jesus too is saying, look, a new Exodus is coming. So he's signaling that this is part of what he means by framing his death as the new Passover. He's going to build a new temple. And this time it's going to be his own body. And then by extension, we then are the body as well, right? So he's building his temple. Um, not for one, I should say, not a new one over there in Jerusalem. Like you'll be, you'll be seeing people in the coming years, you've been seeing, like if you look back through history, they've been trying to rebuild this thing for years, for centuries. It's not going to happen. If it does happen, it's not the temple. Uh, the temple is you, right? You is the temple. So... That, keep that in mind because you will see this stuff all over. You'll see it all the time. So they, they can't see it. What he is going to do, bring about this new exodus and the construction of a new tabernacle. 
and he will judge the Egypts of this world that hold his people in bondage. That's the point. And as the Passover lamb, 1, 29 through um, 31, I think it is, he is bringing about this exodus about, uh, bringing this exodus about for those who get on board with his agenda, his kingdom agenda, where he will go into the heart of the land, go to Jerusalem and be enthroned on Mount Zion, like Psalm 2 said he would. It was also at a second Passover in John chapter 6 that Jesus would, like Moses in the wilderness, like God in the wilderness, provide bread from heaven. This in itself was the huge symbol of himself going to the cross for his people. We know this because he goes on to apply it to himself as the bread of life. That is the bread of life, which if eaten will give you life. This is symbolized then in the feeding of the 5,000. The true bread of heaven would be his body and his blood. And in that, life can be obtained. What Jesus is doing is turning the original Passover events this way and that in order to show the disciples and others who have ears to hear what he intends to do when his hour has come. And now he's back in Jerusalem at a third Passover. This is a significant deal. John has built his book around three Passovers, and the last one of these three will surely be a climactic one. This Passover will define in word and symbol what his mission truly means. And Jesus does something quite unexpected. Note in particular that here in John's gospel, there is no description of the meal, no elements of wine and bread, no mention of the covenant as we find in the other gospels, but it's the same event. John seems to assume that we have the other accounts of the meal itself. And of course, within the early church, they would have been reenacting that meal in their taking of the Lord's Supper, probably weekly. For John, he has incorporated the elements of the Lord's Supper into chapter two, the temple being destroyed and rebuilt by destroying his body. And more pointedly in chapter six, Jesus's body and blood being the bread and the wine of the, uh, of the new Exodus. John has enfleshed the elements. He doesn't have a Lord's Supper account. The book itself is a Lord's Supper account. He has enfleshed these elements. I, I find that very fascinating, the way John has basically crafted his, his story as a way to say the very life of Jesus was, was a new Lord's Supper. It was the Lord's Supper. It was the giving of his body and his blood. John has something else he wants to do here in this final Passover scene. He wants to get at the heart of Jesus's mission, and he does so through a scene of misunderstanding and missional expectation and of love and betrayal of that love. The latter, the betrayal, is a key part of the other gospel traditions, but the former, the love of God in doing this, is only implicitly present within them. This, too, I think is important. It's an important element within John. Read also John's epistle. It's central. The love of God. See how great the love, how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. He's called us children of God. Right? That the love of God is is all over John's gospel, and that's what he's going to do with this account. For John's for John's gospel, the word uh, love is central. 
In John chapter 13, we're going to read uh, through 1 through 11, and then we'll also go from 12 to 17 toward the end. We're going to see the way that uh, Jesus is portrayed as embodying the love of the Father. Now, before the feast of the Passover, John 13, verse 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments. He took off his clothes, took a towel, and girded himself about. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet wash, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. The first thing we should note here, perhaps the second, in addition to Passover, is that John sets Jesus's actions within the template of leaving this world and going to the Father. If we have been hearing what John has been saying thus far in his gospel, both on the lips of Jesus and of John as the narrator, we would hear it once again, Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is exalted to the right hand of God. John says in a slightly veiled manner that this exaltation and vindication is where all of this is headed. He has, in essence, mapped out the rest of the book, ending it climactically with Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his vindication. This is no small point. Jesus' obedience to the Father's plan for Israel and the world culminating in his own death, occurring as it will in the midst of a love betrayed, will be rewarded through Jesus' exaltation to the right hand of the Father. As we have seen in this book, he will be vindicated and made judge, as victorious judge gaining victory over the powers of death through submitting himself to death on Israel's behalf and ultimately the world. And here is the motivation for Jesus doing this love, the love of his people. Never has there been a love like this, nor was there a response to betrayal like this before Jesus, such that one would lay down his very life for his friends. Think also of chapter 10. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. They hear him and they follow him. And they will be asked to take on this role for themselves in relation to their own sheep, based on their love for him. The fishing episode at the end and the subsequent commissioning of Peter in chapter 21 bring this home. Do you love me? Jesus says, feed my sheep. Jesus, having loved his own in the world, loved them to the max. And then at the end, he says of Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. 
Here, John says that Jesus, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end, to the goal, to the max, ace telos. It is love for them that brought him to this place. When he knew his hour had come to depart this world for the Father, he loved them to the max. That's what it says. The whole coming event of the, of the cross, John says, if you could define it with a word, would be an act of supreme love. For God in this way loved the world that he gave. The Son of God loved me, Paul says, and gave himself for me. Have we experienced that love as his disciples? Some people find it difficult to love, but some find it even harder to be loved. As we will see from Peter's reaction to Jesus, he seemed to have that problem as well. But it should be noted that he overcame it and was able to accept Jesus' love for him. Do we have trouble being loved by Jesus, by the Father? This brings us to the scene. In verse 2, John skips over the mill itself, and he focuses on Judas for a moment. And supper, verse 2, being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. An important thing ought to be noticed here. Judas himself had been loved, but he had reciprocated it with betrayal. It doesn't say that Judas didn't get his feet washed. He had his feet washed, but he reciprocated betrayal. And that, in fact, is what betrayal is. Love spurned. But not even betrayal would stop Jesus from going through with the plan to go to his own death on behalf of all who would receive him, including the Judases of this world, if they would turn to him. John 13, 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. Once again, the world will belong to him as an inheritance. As the exalted Son of Man, he will be vindicated through his suffering. With this knowledge and the confidence that he had on the basis of his obedience, he faithfully executed God's plan for the world and for Israel, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. These are the, this is the all things that he had been a part of creating in the beginning. All things were made through him. Now all things are being given into his hand. What does he show? What does he show here as he anticipates the cross? A loving resolve an intentional teaching about what it will mean. He took off his clothing and he girded himself with a towel and began to wash his disciples' feet. He, he rose from supper, verse four, and laid aside his garments. It just says he took off his clothes. He took a towel and he girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. This is remarkable, and it's full of symbolic meaning. The God of all creation and the person of Jesus had become essentially naked and has begun to wash the feet of people. First, who washes feet in that world? The masters? Masters don't wash feet in that world. Servants wash feet. Remember how John had explained the of the people by quoting the final servant song? Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
this is the servant of the Lord, the Lord's arm, and this is what it means. He becomes truly vulnerable, open, naked as it were. He took off his clothing and donned the towel about his waist. So to say, this is what love looks like. Love looks like the cross, which he is enacting in a foot washing scene. The foot washing is not simply to say, I do menial tasks, go and likewise, though certainly it doesn't rule that out. It is saying, and John is saying, this foot washing is a sign of what Jesus is about to do. Like a Passover lamb, I am going to the slaughter. It is a picture of the humiliation and lowly suffering that he will endure naked on the cross. And that may be the reason for him removing his clothes. It is, a, it is a picture of what is about to happen. And it is likely a picture of Jesus as Adam, who, when he had sinned, was left naked and ashamed, only to be clothed with the clothing of the Creator. So that Jesus, when he is preparing for his death, another clothing scene, he enacts the garden scene and willfully becomes naked and ashamed as an act of supreme love for his own people and those who would become his own. It is actually startling what John says, if you read it. He took off his clothes. It doesn't say he took off his outer garment, it probably was just his upper garment, but he took off his clothes and he washed their feet. As Adam was naked and ashamed, bearing guilt for what he had brought into the world, so Jesus would become so in order to redeem Adam, mankind. Chapters nine, chapter 9, 1 through 6, his clothing will be changed again. There he will be clothed with a crown of thorns and a purple robe, the robe of royalty, and given the name, the man, the Adam, and the king, so as to say, this is the father's way of glorifying his son through the cross. Just as Adam was son of God, a king, so Jesus is the son of God, the king, who is a second Adam, who will reverse through his faithful obedience the tragedy for humanity in Genesis 3. It is this cup that has fallen to Jesus to drink, but it is the cup that will ultimately remove the sin of Adam and redeem all of mankind. We will see how in the later chapters of John, how Jesus is being portrayed as a new Adam, summing up all of the new humanity. This is not just something that's here. This is all over the last few chapters, chapter 19, 20, 21. You can see uh, that the way that John portrays Jesus as the one who's going to reverse everything that came about through Adam. He is a new Adam and he's crucified in a garden, etc., And uh, he's going to be mistaken by this woman for the gardener, etc. There's a lot of, of garden imagery there that we'll see. This, I think, is, has already begun here. When he becomes naked, he is taking on the nakedness and the shame of, of Adam, which is all humanity. This cup has fallen to Jesus to drink, and it is this cup that will ultimately remove the sin of Adam and redeem all of mankind. That is who the disciples are called to be the new humanity. They are the ones who are cleansed. They are the ones who benefit from the act of Jesus as the new Adam. Out of his side then will come the new humanity. Now, did the disciples see all of this? 
not likely, as we can see from the following section. But this is what John intends his readers to see in this action. Through an act of supreme love, Jesus will redeem Adam, the original humanity, through his death, his own death, and his own exile. Now the problem. Peter will not permit Jesus to wash his feet. Verse 6. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Hear it? This is for the future, Peter. The love of God is for your reflection. We often can see it in the present, but looking back, everything becomes clear. Often things that appear bad and tragic in our lives, in hindsight, are shown to be the work of our loving Father. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. It is here that we truly find out the meaning of this action of the foot washing. Once again, we must become comfortable with symbolic action, because this was the mode of a prophet. As you can see in Isaiah, read Isaiah, read Ezekiel, read Jeremiah, and see what mode they operated in, the mode of symbolic action. This is the mode of Jesus. The foot washing was essentially a mime followed by an explanation. Jesus has something to say, and he acts it out in a pow powerful and unforgettable display of affection. But what does it mean in words? This is explained in the interchange between Jesus and Peter. On the surface, it is, surface, it's almost humorous. Peter says, not a chance you're washing my feet. You're my master. Masters don't wash servants' feet. Jesus then attempts the line, just trust me, you'll understand later. But Peter won't have it. Jesus was attempting to say this. What I am doing is not about this action now. Rather, it's about what I'm going to be doing tomorrow and in the following days. In this statement, Jesus reveals that this gesture is a symbol and that it is not simply a final loving gesture before he leaves them. In a word, the foot washing is the cross explained by means of an action. Peter is not understanding. He's not falling for it. He is not trusting the Lord with it. So Jesus says, very well then, you have no portion, no part in me. Now, we don't often understand what he means here because we're, we're often not kind of engaged in the story of, say, Samuel. But it, it's akin to saying when he says, you will, very well, you won't have any part in me. <laughs> It is akin to saying, I am your king, and you are a rebel subject. You have no inheritance in me. You cannot participate in what I gather for the nation. What I conquer on behalf of the nation, you will not participate in. In fact, in 2 Samuel 20, verse 1, this is exactly what was said by those who rebelled against David. In exactly the same word, using the exactly the same word in the Septuagint. And there happened to be a rebel there 
whose name was Sheba, the son of Bikri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and he said, we have no part, no merits, no portion in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tent, O Israel. Peter understood this. He did not understand yet what it meant, nor did the rest of them. But he understood that to have no part in Jesus is to have no part in the inheritance that he is going to receive when he becomes king. He did not understand this at the time, nor did the rest of them, that the cross was actually Jesus's coronation as king. But as far as Peter was concerned, whatever the future looked like, he wanted it to be aligned with Jesus and be on his side and in his camp. So Peter's response, which is the humorous part, is to say, well, then, wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head. If washing me is what it, ha- what it takes to have a portion within your kingdom, wash me all over. Jesus, of course, says to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is, but is completely clean otherwise. And you are clean, but not all of you. Here again, the symbolism is thick. Bathing here stands for cleansing. And you are already cleansed, he says, by believing my words and following them. You simply need an occasional foot washing. Here again, as we see often in John, he is speaking proleptically. As though something is true in the present, though it awaits its genuine fulfillment in the future. Here, the cross, which is what will cleanse the disciples, and for us for that matter, and us for that matter, from the filthiness of sin in the world is what is ahead, what he's pointing to. As John says in his epistle, seemingly echoing chapters 12 and 13 of his gospel, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. There it is in plainer words. Jesus, the blood of Jesus, that is his cross, and the act upon the cross is what cleanses us from all sin. Jesus speaks in this current parable as though that is already the case. That's what I mean by speaking proleptically. It's as good as done. Or as Peter would later write, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The purification will come, Jesus says, and you will understand it then. And by believing in me, letting me wash you, you are cleansed from your sins. Your feet only need to be washed now, so as to say you need an occasional cleansing of those parts of you that get get dirty. Once again, echoed by John in his epistle. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleansing is actually an extremely important part of the forgiveness of sins. Why is that? What's going on in this idea of cleansing? Once again, we have to think in terms of temple and of fellowship. The cleansing, the purification happens on the altar. That's where Jesus is offered, and he is purifying those who want to draw near to God, and he's bringing them into his presence. And it's that periodic cleansing that we all need. Initially, we are cleansed when we come to God through Jesus, 
and then periodically when we need to have our parts, our personalities, and our mouths sometimes cleansed. That's what this foot washing is about, says Jesus. It's an enactment of the death I'm about to die. And you will come to understand this very soon. But rarely are Jesus's actions simply for the individual hearer to indulge himself with. With Jesus's words come a calling, a calling to follow, almost always, to do as he does, to be Jesus to the world. So when he had washed their feet, verse 12, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus doesn't, as far as I know, say, oh, look how much I love you. Just bask in that love and do nothing. Sit in the hot tub of my love and just enjoy what, what I have done for you. Never says that. Right? If he is anything, he is the God who acts. If Jesus was all about his father's business on our behalf, he expects nothing less from us toward others. Jesus didn't simply bask in the Father's love and do nothing. He got to work being the Father's love to those who the Father had given him. And he expects nothing less of us. We are not called for our own sake. God's mission in this world has no stop button. It is get on board or be left behind. And for this to happen, there must be, first of all, cleansing, the cleansing of the whole body, and then that occasional uh, outworking of, of divine forgiveness through our uh, the washing of our feet.